Okay, uh, this is a, uh, a big deal uh, because we come in faith uh, to the Bible, uh, believing that it is God's word and that the spirit speaks through uh, what he has spoken. And uh, today we're going to look at a story and I'm going to be trying my best to help you see Jesus in it, but there's uh, so much more here and I hope you're able to go away and even think more deeply about Jesus and what he has accomplished and who he is as a result of our time together. And uh, it's not that complicated a story, really, but uh, the thing is, it's still actually going to take us a little work. I'm not going to make it easy for you, because uh, this story, I think, answers an important question, a really important question that, unfortunately, I don't think we're always asking. We should be asking but we're not always asking. And so I need to do some work to get us asking the question that this story answers. And it takes a little bit of work because reading the Bible, in a sense, is a cross-cultural experience. It is God's word, and yet God chose to speak through a particular people in a particular time, in a particular place. And it's not our particular time or our particular place, or our particular people. And yet, I, I think it's easy to forget that, just the distance. So, uh, for example, classic example, I wonder how you imagine Jesus, like if you had to picture Jesus. Because it's uh, funny, but people often imagine Jesus looking a little like themselves. <laughs> so for a lot of people who look like me, they have this image of Jesus with uh, sort of long, dirty blonde hair, a European or something, but there are African versions of Jesus, and there are Asian ideas as well. But of course, we know that Jesus was not a German or Japanese or even Congolese. He was Jewish, and so he looked like a Jewish man. And to uh, press on that a little more, actually, he wasn't just Jewish in the way that he looked either. He grew up in a particular place, around a particular people, who thought a particular way, and valued particular things. In other words, Jesus was a man, but as someone has put it, Jesus was not just a man. He was a particular person born within a living culture, which is obvious. And yet, sometimes we think of Jesus in such general and universal terms that he virtually becomes abstract. And that is a problem, actually, because what happens as a result is that we sometimes have a hard time hearing what Jesus is actually saying, especially if we're in a hurry. Because any relationship, you have to listen. But cross-cultural relationships, you have to listen especially carefully. In fact, I wonder how many of you have had a cross-cultural relationship, like a, like a deep one. Because when you have a cross-cultural relationship, there are a lot of things that you have in common, of course, but there are also a lot of things where you are very different, which is part of what makes them valuable because you can learn things, but also difficult because you have different assumptions and you don't always recognize your own assumptions because they're assumptions, right? You just think that is the way it is. And so some things seem obvious to you that are totally not obvious to others. And other things don't seem obvious to you that are obvious to others. And you know, you often have different questions and different objections even about a lot of things, but in particular about the Bible and about God. You are asking one question, they ask another question. So, for example, I remember teaching about baptism in Africa, and I brought up something almost as a joke that I thought no one would ever wonder about, and yet I found out later that was one of the primary questions people were asking about, and it had something to do with people being baptized in a, a pool versus being baptized in a river, and I never would have thought that would have been a real question, but it was, and they had reasons that made sense to them. And that's true not just in cross-cultural relationships we have today. That's true even when we're reading a gospel like Luke. This is a cross-cultural relationship. 
And so sometimes there are things that might cause us to question or wonder that the people in Jesus' day really wouldn't have wondered about at all, like demon possession maybe. But on the other hand, there are questions they would have had that we wouldn't necessarily ask. Like, I think, the question behind Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 32, actually. This is not a question that a lot of people in our day are asking. They should be asking, but they're not always asking. Luke is taking us back to Jesus' life and dealing with a problem we don't always appreciate because of our assumptions. And it has to do with the kingdom of God. So this is the context. At the end of chapter 4, you remember Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, which I know already lost some of us, the, the kingdom of God, because we're not that familiar with the idea of the kingdom of God. And yet the people in Jesus' day there in Israel would have been absolutely longing for it for several different reasons, but one big one was because it was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise which they grew up reading and being taught about. It's God defeating his enemies. It's God rescuing his people. Ultimately, it's God coming to rule visibly and bring his people into a perfect place where they would experience his eternal blessing and enjoy his glorious presence forever. That is the good news of the kingdom of God. It is God's people in God's place, experiencing God's blessing and enjoying God's presence forever. Which wasn't a controversial message, obviously, back in Jesus' day, there in Israel. Someone preaching the kingdom of God, Jesus preaching the kingdom of God, wasn't controversial. But what was definitely bold print controversial about Jesus and the kingdom of God was who he was inviting to be part of it. And now this is Luke chapter 5. Maybe you remember how verses 1 to 32 go together. There are four stories. And the last story kind of helps us get the point because you have Jesus enjoying a banquet with tax collectors and sinners, which was clearly a big deal. The Pharisees got all upset, the religious leadership of Jesus' day. And they got upset because, for one thing, meals were an expression of welcome and friendship. So this is Jesus pursuing a friendship with tax collectors and sinners. But it's even bigger here because it's like a picture of the kingdom of God. It's kind of like how Jesus' miracles were previews or pictures of the kingdom of God. These meals were a picture of the kingdom of God as well. And the Pharisees knew it. That's why they were getting angry. As someone has said, the, the problem wasn't the meal. They expected the kingdom of God was going to be like a party. They just objected to who Jesus said was on the guest list. Because in their minds... This is not who the kingdom of God is for, which actually becomes one of their main objections to Jesus. And it's not just that he was with sinners. Again, that's not the main issue so much. The issue is that that is not who they thought the kingdom of God was for. He's going around calling people to be part of the kingdom of God, and these are the kinds of people that he's calling and as the gospel goes on, that really gets them angry, and we need to know why. Why did that upset them? Because that is not something that would upset us. If I say Jesus came to offer the kingdom of God to unworthy sinners, I don't think anyone here is picking up stones. We're more like, of course, of course. I mean, if we actually have a problem... It's more of the opposite, because we're like, how can sinners not be part of the kingdom of God? Why is anybody even asking that? That's not fair. We feel entitled. But you know, what if, imagine, what if some of our assumptions, the story that we've been sold, the way we've been trained to think is off, is wrong? Because there is a reason this is shocking. Sinners being part of the kingdom of God. And you read the book of Exodus and Leviticus, the Old Testament backstory, and I think you'll begin to get a sense why. Why it's worth asking, how can Jesus offer the kingdom of God to the unworthy if he really is the Messiah? 
Because the kingdom of God, remember, what makes it so great is the special presence of God. That's what we're talking about. And what that means is God dwelling with man, which is thrilling because that's what we long for. But if you know your Bible, it's also terrifying because God is not just an idea. He is a person, and he is an absolutely glorious and majestic person. I mean, when you talk about the kingdom of God, what makes it perfect is the presence of God. But that's also what makes it a problem for us. Because how do you live in the presence of God and not die? It's kind of like someone saying, you know, Things are perfect on the sun, the sun in the sky. It's really a perfect place to live. There are no problems there. And you're like, that sounds great, but how can I live on the sun and not get burned up? That's obviously an issue. It's not going to work for me in this condition. We have to remember as we read the Bible, God is not a creature like us. He's in a category altogether different. There is the creator and there is creatures or our creatures and there's a sense in which you could say he's dangerous God and one reason why he's dangerous is because he's so good like like the sun really the thing that makes the sun so important is also what makes the sun so dangerous if the sun weren't like that it wouldn't be good but because the sun is like that we get too close we die and God is good God is holy, and God is beautiful, and that is amazing, but that's also what makes him dangerous. And a lot of the Old Testament shows us that. You know, we've been reading through Exodus on Thursday mornings in the Bible Reading Project, and there's this great scene in Exodus 19 where God is coming down to speak to the people on Mount Sinai. Maybe you remember it. And some people, the way they describe this moment, it's like a wedding ceremony, and God is coming to meet his bride. And there's all this thunder and lightning and there's a thick cloud and there's a trumpet coming from somewhere that keeps getting louder and louder and the mountain itself is trembling and that's because God is coming down. And God tells Moses that he needs to warn the people. He says, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And then later he says in verse 24, Do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And of course, it's a little hard for us to grasp all that, it being so scary. But that's partly because we're so used to thinking of God as an idea or something. But he's a person. He's real. And while his glory and his Holiness and his perfection are what make him so beautiful and worthy of our worship. It's also one of the things that makes him dangerous for us as humans because we're not any of those things. No matter how religious you are, no matter what you think of yourself, we are really broken in a number of ways. And one of the primary ways that comes into our minds, of course, being our sin. We are sinners, and that is the fundamental problem. In fact, there's a a vision in the Old Testament, and this is just a vision, but it's Isaiah, and he has this vision of being in God's presence. And you know, Isaiah is like the best man in Israel at that point. He's a legitimately holy man, a, a prophet. But you know, even in this vision of being in the presence of God, what he says, he says, woe is me, and woe is a proclamation of judgment. So it's like, damn me, really. He sees a vision of God, this holy man, and he sees himself, and he's like, I deserve to be judged. Judge me. Our sin is a a problem, but there's more. Because there's also just our brokenness, the devastating impact that sin has had on us and even on our very own bodies, which is definitely something that's a little harder for us to appreciate at first in terms of why that's a problem for anything physical to be a barrier to experiencing the presence of God. Because most of the time when we think of the problems that sin has created, we think in moral terms. 
But there's also a physical brokenness sin has created in this world. We are not living in the Garden of Eden anymore. Things are different now. And so again, this concept is a little tricky to understand because we aren't used to it. And in our culture, we try to ignore the problems people have physically. We downplay physical problems. And so you know it's rude to make anyone feel ashamed about anything, especially things they don't have control over, which is why if someone's handicapped or if they have a certain disease or if they're poor and they don't have money for nice clothes, we're big on not making them feel like that's an issue, which is great. We're for that. But the reality is it doesn't always work in real life because there are some things and there are some moments that are so significant that certain things don't fit. And it's not so much because the person themselves is sinful, it's because they're in a certain state or condition that doesn't make it appropriate. Like, and I'm just trying to illustrate, but maybe say at a really fancy wedding, and you can imagine this beautiful bride and this amazing cathedral and this orchestra in the background playing this beautiful music, and it's all very serious and very somber and very elegant. And yet, for some reason, imagine I got this disease where I had this massive tumor, like a 100-pound tumor coming out of my head, and it's oozing white gunk all over. I don't know if tumors actually do that, but you can picture something gross. And that's going to have an impact, because no matter how nice you want to be to me, probably you're not going to want me to be the officiating pastor at that moment, at a wedding like that. It's not that you're being unkind to me. It's just that it doesn't fit. Or maybe a better illustration, actually, because there's some nice person out there who's like, I don't mind all the white oozy stuff all over. So maybe a better illustration, and I didn't come up with this one, but someone else has explained, is to think about an operating room. Because an op operating room is a special place. I think most of us have been to hospitals, all of us, and during COVID it was kind of hard to even get into the hospital. But normally we can all enter a hospital, no problem. But an operating room is a little different. I've been in an operating room, they call it a theater in South Africa. But that's because MARTA was being operated on. But besides that, I would guess that most of us who aren't doctors haven't been in an operating room, like just for a visit. Imagine if just anyone wandered in and out of operating rooms. That's not how it works, at least as far as I know. Tim Mackey, the, the person who gives this illustration, explains, only certain people can go in. And when they go in, there's a whole list of rituals that they have to go through before entering. They have to wash their hands and... Uh, you can ask Hugo. They even have to wash their hands a certain way. They have to put on a mask. They put on booties and clean clothes. Ultimately, they have to be sterile, free from bacteria. Why? Because the person on the operating table will be opened up and nothing can be brought into the room that will contaminate that person's body. So it's like the operating room is a special place designated for saving lives. And so anything that would lead to contamination or death would not be welcome in this particular room, which we understand. And we're not like, how rude, you know, this person with open sores all over, or he, like he's there holding a dead rat. How come you won't let him in? Don't you like dead rats? Why does he have to put the dead rat down or make sure the open sores are covered? No, we understand that, and that's just an operating room. I'm guessing the truth is we'd even be like that with our own house. Our kids come home from the lake with green slime all over them. I think most of you are like, you're not coming in here like that. And the kingdom of God is going to be like heaven on earth. This is God's home. And God's home is perfect and full of everything that's associated with life and blessing. And it's where God rips back the curtain, in a sense, and reveals his special presence. And so obviously it needs to be truly and completely perfect. And if anything is going to come into God's special presence forever, it has to be perfect in every way as well. It can't have even a hint of death on it. It can't be associated with the curse in any way. In other words, it needs not only to be holy, it needs to be whole. That's the thing, whole, the way it was designed to be which a lot of times we're not. 
And I think sometimes we know we're not. And that's a problem because how can we dwell in the presence of God like this? And if you read Leviticus, actually, this is a book that illustrates what I'm talking about big time. Because uh, maybe you remember, God did set up a kind of kingdom on earth already a couple of times. Uh, One is the Garden of Eden. But then after man rebelled, he set up his kingdom again with Israel. And you know how the story goes, right? After man rejects God's kingdom and is kicked out of the garden, God doesn't stop. Genesis and Exodus tell this story about God choosing Israel to be the means he's going to use to rescue the world and to get us back to where we can experience his special presence. And to accomplish that, he begins by saving Israel from Egypt, and he's saving Israel to come dwell with them. Sort of the way that I'm describing, sort of the way he did with Adam in the garden. That's the goal of Exodus, God living with his people. And yet there's a problem at the end of Exodus because this is after the Garden of Eden and so we're all broken. And so they build this tabernacle, chapter after chapter after chapter on how to build that tabernacle. And God moves in at the end of Exodus. And you know what? Even Moses isn't able to come close because God is just so holy. And of course, that's why there's Leviticus. That's the point. God wants to live with his people And yet they are sinners living in a sinful world. And so he has to give them a lot of rules just so they don't die. And you look at the rules in Leviticus, and some of the rules seem strange to us, like especially when he talks about the clean and the unclean. Have you ever read Leviticus? And yet those rules are obviously important because if you were unclean and came near God, you could literally die. And what seems strange at first as you read the book of Leviticus is how physical the clean and unclean things were. Because when we think about what it takes to be in the presence of God, we think primarily in moral terms, and we should. And yet in Leviticus, clean and unclean were not only moral issues. It had to do with sickness and disease and all sorts of other things. And it's because, like I'm saying, we're talking about God's actual special presence being there in the middle of the nation of Israel. And that is not just a spiritual concept or idea, you understand. It is physical. It is like heaven on earth. And so, of course, there needed to be regulations regarding holiness and morality, but also regarding physical matters as well, because this is God's home on earth that we're talking about. And you know, even now what happens if you try to go into an operating room and you're all contaminated, you're kicked out. Imagine what happens if you try to go in God's home unclean. You die. And one of the most intense illustrations of that, actually, and we're getting to Luke, I promise. I'm trying to give you the background knowledge to understand the text. One of the most intense illustrations of how perfect everything had to be is Leviticus 21, where Moses is given some rules regarding which priests were able to enter into God's presence there in the tabernacle. And honestly, the rules don't seem fair if you read them. Because God says, listen, just listen, you'll see what I'm talking about. He says, none of your offspring through their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offering since he has a blemish. And you hear that and you're like, that doesn't seem right. How could God be like that? Because this is definitely something our culture has a problem with because we're like, isn't that kind of discrimination? But again, look, there's a reason. And the reason is because God's teaching us something about holiness. The tabernacle is a model of the heavens and the earth. And it gives us a picture of what the earth is going to be like when God dwells on it. And that's why perfection is so important, obviously. God's saying those who would dwell in his presence must be perfect without defects of any kind. Which, of course, is part of what makes the kingdom of God so great. There's no problems there. And yet, and fast forward back to Luke, because maybe you can see now, after all, how this is a really legitimate question, actually, if you, if you think about it. Because, I mean, how can Jesus offer the kingdom to the unworthy? 
How can he say that? Because, again, I keep saying it, but this is not just an idea or concept that we're talking about. This is God dwelling with people. Sort of like what we read about in Exodus and Leviticus, the fulfillment of that. That's what we're hoping. And that's why the Pharisees are getting upset. Because they had their own answer to this problem. How God could dwell with his people again. In fact, that's part of why there even were Pharisees. They were reading their Bible and they were like, you know what? God's supposed to dwell with us. And back in the day, he did. But we messed up. Because he gave us the law and we didn't do it well enough. And that's why we got kicked out of the promised land. We weren't faithful to God's law and all these rules and regulations. And so we want that back. And you know what we need to do to get things right so that the Messiah can come and save us and we can experience the glory of God again? We need to get to work. If God's going to send his Messiah, we need to prove that we're worthy of him. That must be the problem. We're not worthy. And so we've got to stay away from anything or anyone that might make us unclean. It's like we've got to live in a state of constant purity. We've got to obey, obey, obey so that we can be rescued. Which, you know, okay, we're not Jews. And uh, so all this feels far removed. Like I keep saying, this is cross-cultural, I know. But even now, if you just take that concept, we're not that different. We say it different, but the basic idea is still how a lot of people work. They assume God shows his grace to the worthy. The kingdom is for the worthy. The difference in America now is that we're all taught to think we are worthy, and so we all get in. I mean, how dare God not let us in? But the thing is, here's the, here's the problem. Again, you start reading your Bible or paying attention to yourself, and you know that's not true. Either because you see your sin or just your own brokenness, which is why people live in this kind of constant state of either delusion or depression. Either they're deluded, I am worthy, I am worthy, or they're depressed, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And then, you know, they try to find some way to feel worthy or to prove to other people they're worthy or ignore that they are unworthy. And this is how a lot of religion works, actually. I'm using this to prove that I'm worthy. I'm good to myself, maybe, to others, to deal with my shame. And, and not just religion, either. That's an explanation of a lot of people's lives, using things to try to feel worthy enough for whoever or whatever is their God. And maybe even that's some of you. Deep down, there's all this shame and guilt, and you think, I've got to overcome this shame. I've got to find some way to deal with this guilt. I've got to somehow fix myself up so God can show his grace to me. But that's not how the gospel works. Please hear that. This is what makes the gospel so radical. And it's what was making the Pharisees so upset. Because Jesus is coming, announcing the kingdom of God, and he's making it clear that God's plan, plan is not to give the kingdom to those who prove themselves worthy. He offers his kingdom to those who recognize they're unworthy instead. This is a kingdom for the unworthy. And that is good news, that it is not based on our performance or our worth for a lot of reasons. But if we just come back to the story of the Bible and think back to the days of Jesus and the Pharisees, you can see how us fixing things is going to be such a problem if that's how salvation worked. If we think, okay, the kingdom of God, we're going to make this happen by being really serious about the Old Testament law, there's a problem even for the Pharisees, and that's the fact that it's not permanent. You're going from clean to unclean in this world all the time. There is so much death and disease and decay, and so there have to be so many rules and regulations. It's tiring. It's hard. Living Leviticus is hard. Even reading Leviticus is hard because there are so many laws and so many ways to become unclean and separated from God. And the thing is, God's long-term plan is something bigger and better, which I'm saying now is the key to understanding Jesus. This is what makes him so different. 
Because God is not sending Jesus as another teacher. He's sending Jesus as a savior. He is not sending the Messiah to come and teach people how to live a better life so that God can dwell with them. He's sending the Messiah to come and personally deal with all the problems himself. Which you understand is huge. This is not just going back to Leviticus and some temporary kind of solution. This is bigger. It's permanent. Which is part of why the Messiah has to die. That's going to be part of the explanation for that. And it's why here he can offer the kingdom to the unworthy. It's not that he ignores the fact that they're unworthy. It's that he's going to deal with the things that make them unworthy. That is what he's coming to do. He is coming to be the solution. Which is this massive claim for this Jewish man who lived 2,000 years years ago. And so now we need some proof that Jesus can do that. Can Jesus really deal with these fundamental problems of sin and guilt, of brokenness and the things that bring us shame? Which is where you start seeing how this passage works, I think. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 32. Maybe you remember how I said last week it's like a sandwich. And that might have been a little confusing. But the the pieces of bread are verses 1 to 11 and verses 27 to 32. And I just mean they have something in common. They're about Jesus calling sinners to be part of his kingdom. In verse 32, Jesus says this is his mission. He came to call sinners to repentance. And in verse 10, he starts with Simon. Simon says, I can't be near you because I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, Simon, that's not going to stop me. I'm actually going to transform you and use you to take my message out to other sinful people so that the kingdom of God will be filled with sinners like you who have repented. And yet we know in a sandwich, the part that is really important is what goes between the the pieces of bread. The meat, right? Or if you're a vegetarian, I guess, whatever they put in vegetarian sandwiches. But that's what makes a sandwich a sandwich. And that's kind of true in this section as well. Because it's one thing for Jesus to say, for Luke to say that Jesus is calling the unworthy to be part of the kingdom. That's great. But anyone can invite anyone to anything. We need to know how can we be sure that he has the power to make that happen. Does Jesus actually have the power to deal with sin? And does Jesus have the power to deal with shame and the things that have broken us? And if he can, once you see that Jesus has that power, that he really can fix all that, you start to wonder, does he want to fix someone like me? Which I think is why Luke tells this story about a leper. Because when it comes to all that Old Testament stuff we were talking about earlier, this is a man who was like in the worst possible situation. He is like a worst case scenario. And that's maybe point number one, if specifically we're talking about shame and brokenness and asking, does Jesus really have the power and authority and desire to deal with that? I'm going to give you an example as proof. And to feel the weight of this example, first, make sure you notice the leper's desperate condition. Because this man was in trouble. And for a lot of reasons. First of all, physically. Luke says, verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And leprosy was a a different, a, a term for a number of different skin diseases. So we don't really know what kind of leprosy he had. But we do know that whatever kind of leprosy he had, it was at a very advanced stage because it was all over him. Luke says he was full of it. And it would be easy for us, I think, to focus in on the physical problems leprosy would have caused him because it was terrible. But what made leprosy such a terrible condition, really, was not just so much the uh, physical aspects of it, but the emotional pain that would have come along with it, because lepers were outcasts, especially in Israel. Because people would have judged him as being under the curse. And so you have got this physical problem with leprosy. Obviously, that was terrible. But maybe worse was all the shame that came along with it which is true even today, actually. Any disease you can see, people struggle a little more, especially when it disfigures. And leprosy can disfigure a person to the point where seeing them actually causes a physical reaction for some people. They're just like, ah. I actually visited a leper 
colony there in Africa, I remember. But uh, it was 100 years after the lepers had lived there, and it was full of homeless people at that point. But no one still, 100 years later, wanted to go near. But back then, it was worse. And what is worse is that in Jesus' day, it wasn't just people who would have cast the person out because they didn't want to be near him. There were even biblical regulations that were given for a case like this. I mean, religious leaders got involved in all this. So what happened when you came down with something like leprosy is that you would be examined by the priests, the religious leaders, and if they determined you had the disease, they would make an official pronouncement, and they would literally cast you outside the people of God. You were excluded, and they had all kinds of rules for keeping you outside if you had leprosy. Even some of them from the Bible, like take the book of Leviticus, the Leprous person, Leviticus 13, who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He's unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And outside the camp, imagine that's such a Sad phrase. If you want a picture of the devastating consequences of sin, it would have to be this leper. He was basically a walking illustration of how badly Adam's sin had broken everything. He's got the physical pain, he's got the relational pain, and he's just got the weight of this shame he's carrying around on his shoulders day after day as he's having to walk around wearing grave clothes, basically shouting out, I might as well be dead. I might as well be dead. I can't come near God. I can't come near God. He has to live outside the camp, which is what makes leprosy so awful because to be a leper was to be excluded by definition from the people of God, but what's worse, from the worship of God. And so they had these rules and regulations to keep them away on the outside and really from the presence of God as well. It's where the special presence of God was there in the tabernacle. That's where the the blessing was and the leper couldn't get to it. In fact, the priest, as long as a person had leprosy, their job was basically to keep him from getting anywhere near the place that represented the special presence of God, the tabernacle or the temple. And here's where it gets really sad because there was absolutely nothing the leper could do about it. That's why I say he's the worst case scenario because in Leviticus, the Old Testament, you know, there are a lot of other things that could make you unclean, but usually there was a process you could go through for getting clean. But, and and that's maybe point number two, the first is the leper's desperate condition, and the second is the law's insufficient provision. Because, you know, this leper, if he was thinking, I want to get things right, and he picked up his Bible and he started reading Leviticus, he would have seen, while there were all kinds of laws in the Old Testament about what to do with people like him, none of them could fix him. All the law could do was determine whether or not he needed to be cast out. Or if he somehow was healed, explain the process of how he could re-enter the people of God. But the law itself, by itself, gave no hope for dealing with the leper's fundamental problem. It couldn't cleanse him. He was barred, excluded from the presence of God by the law of God. And we might feel badly about that, but that was right, totally right, because of the holiness and majesty of God. And as long as there was leprosy, as long as he had leprosy, there was nothing the law could do about it, which was the whole issue with the law, actually. And that's one reason why, long-term, the law is not enough if we're going to live permanently in God's presence. It can't be. Here, you fix this. You stay pure. You stay right. We're too broken for that. And so, you know, even away, apart from the way Adam's sin has affected us, we definitely need something more than Leviticus if we're going to live eternally in God's presence because God's law had no way to fix how sin has impacted this world at the most basic level. And that's why even in the Old Testament, there's not just Leviticus. There's also the prophets. And this is so cool. Because years after Leviticus, the prophets show us we need something more. And they give us a glimpse of how God's going to do something new in this world. It's just a glimpse. But you start to see it with Isaiah even. Because Isaiah is about how God is going to cleanse his people. And the way the book is set up, Isaiah himself is like a preview. And you remember how I told you that Isaiah has this vision where he's standing in the presence of God. And he recognizes that he's unclean. And so what happens? Do you remember? This is, this is neat. And it's a clue to Jesus. What happens is this angel takes this coal, burning coal, 
this really pure, holy thing, and flies straight at Isaiah and touches his lips with it. And what usually happens then, do you know? When a clean thing touches an unclean thing, usually the clean thing becomes unclean. But that's not what happens here. Instead, Isaiah is cleansed. It's like, what? And then Ezekiel, and I'm quoting now, but Ezekiel has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. And so instead of washing and becoming pure first and then going into the temple, Ezekiel's picturing this great future where God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. And Luke's big point is, that's Jesus. It's why he's so excited. He's not just another religious teacher telling us what's wrong with us. He's the savior who's coming to fix us. And I love this because, again, it's a real solution. The other solutions aren't solutions when it comes to what's broken in us. You have the world that says it doesn't matter, ignore it. And that's no good, obviously, because that doesn't fix us. You're still broken, and you know it. You're just pretending like you're not. And then you have the law which condemns us and says, no, you're wrong. This isn't right. And that's better than the world, for sure, because at least we know our problem, but it's not enough. What we need is something bigger. And Luke's saying, that's Jesus. Praise God, that's Jesus. This is part of what makes the good news good news. And this is point number three. You've got the leper's desperate condition, the law's insufficient provision, and the Lord's surprising salvation. Because look, listen, again, if all Jesus did was come and announce the kingdom of God, that God was coming to dwell among us, that wouldn't be such good news for us. That would be terrifying because we are unholy and we are unclean. And in our condition, we would not survive in God's presence. We would be absolutely destroyed by the holiness and majesty of God. The reason the good news is good news is because Jesus came not only to announce the kingdom of God, but to provide the healing and holiness. We need to enter in and enjoy it. He came to do what the law could not, not just to condemn, but to restore. And this story with the leper proves it. It proves Jesus can fix what is wrong with the world. And even more importantly, that he's willing to fix what is wrong with you. Because did you notice his question, the leper? He gets it. And so we need to hear him because it's not a question we would ask at first. We would ask, can Jesus heal us? Can he heal us? But that's not his question, is it? What's his question? It's not... Can you make me clean? It's, will you make me clean? Luke says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Which once you have all that Old Testament background, I think you see is really the key question. Because you think about God and his kingdom, him dwelling with people, and you think about us, obviously there's no question he can do it. He can fix what's wrong. He's God, but he's, is he willing? And the Pharisees were like, no, he's not. At least not for certain people. There are certain people. No, that he's not willing. Grace is only for people who prove they deserve it. And you can see how in that environment this leper might have wondered. I mean, it's actually shocking that he would dare approach Jesus at all. If you think about the Old Testament in terms of the tabernacle. Remember John 1, Jesus is God tabernacling with us. And so in Old Testament terms, this leper approaching Jesus is like a leper running straight through the camp of Israel, past the priests, straight up to the tabernacle door itself and crying out, let me in, let me in, let me in. Which is why what happens next is even more shocking because in the Old Testament, if that happened, what would you expect? You would expect for that man to be consumed immediately because the Old Testament didn't have a solution for an unclean man like the leper. In fact, there's a story in the Old Testament. You remember the Ark of the Covenant 
which was associated with God's presence as well. And you remember how one time they had to transport it? And there was a man who was helping, and he reached out, and he touched the ark to keep it from falling. And what happened? He was killed instantly. Not because God's unkind, but because he's God. He's God. And yet here this man runs up to Jesus, who is God with us. And he doesn't touch the ark, but the God-man, the tabernacle, touches him. Luke writes, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Which are some of the best words in the entire Bible. I will be clean. For one thing, because Jesus reveals God to us and it shows God's love for the unworthy and for the sinner, of course. But for another, because what would happen normally if you touched a leper? The leper would make you unclean, but not Jesus. Jesus doesn't become unclean. Instead, the leper is cleansed and immediately the leprosy left him. And that's why we have hope that Jesus really can offer the kingdom to the unworthy. Because in Jesus, we are meeting someone totally different, someone totally new. God's plan is so much better than the Pharisees thought. Because sure, they had been reading their Bibles and they knew God was good. They thought God was good, but they didn't know how good God was. And as a result, they didn't really know how bad they were either, which is why they thought, you know how this works? We need to prove that we're worthy. The kingdom of God is for the worthy. The Messiah is coming for the worthy. We've got to do this. We've got to do this. But Jesus is like, no, it's not. He is not coming for the worthy. And you should be glad about that because your problem is way bigger than you think it is. You don't need more rules, and you don't need another teacher. You need a savior. You need someone who can fix the way sin has broken the world, and someone who can fix the way sin has broken you. And that is Jesus. I'm here to say that is Jesus. Jesus can do what no one else can do. He can deal with the problems that keep us from experiencing the special presence of God at the root level. That's why he came. To deal with sin, guilt, and shame. And you know what? He is the only one who can do that. And this story proves it. It proves that he's able to do it and that he's willing as he actually reaches out and touches this leper. And then he counsels him how to be restored to his community, verse 14, by showing himself to the priest and making an offering for proof to them. And you know, he does all this, Jesus, even though it makes his own life more difficult. You see, he tells the leper to be silent. He charged him to tell no one, probably meaning until after he's been to the, the priest. And I think one reason for that is just to help the leper re-enter his community fully because it was so shocking, people wouldn't believe it until after the priest confirmed it. And then also probably because Jesus is a man on a mission, and this kind of publicity is only going to make that mission more complicated, and it does. In fact, as you look at this story, it's kind of ironic because the story starts with the leper at the edge of the city, and it ends with Jesus having to go outside the city to desolate places just to find time alone with God. It's almost like he and the leper switch places. And that, of course, we know is ultimately how God makes the unclean clean and forgives sin. Christ came into the world to save. How? Through Jesus taking our place taking your sin and taking your shame. That's why he had to die. God wants to dwell with us, and because of sin, man couldn't dwell in the presence of God. And clearly, reading the Old Testament, man couldn't fix that problem by himself either. And so what did God do? God united himself to human nature in order to make it possible for us as sinful and broken humans to dwell eternally in his presence in the kingdom of God. If we'll just repent. And trust in Jesus, which is awesome. And honestly, once you stop listening to the world and start really looking at yourself, sometimes feels like too much. Really? Me dwell in the presence of a holy God? Me? 
there's my sin, and there's not just my sin, there's my shame. We might feel like, no way. For some of us, like this leper, there's just so much shame. We just know we don't deserve this. How can we draw near to God? How can we live in the presence of God? And the answer is because God drew near to us. Not just to judge, but to save. There is a savior for people who know they need him. Do you know you need him? The problem so often isn't what we think it is. We think it's because we're not strong enough when the problem is really that we don't recognize how weak we really are. If you will only run to Jesus like this leper and humble yourself before Jesus, stop defending yourself, stop trying to hide your shame and come to Jesus trusting that he can save you and pleading with him to do what you cannot do, to do what religion cannot do, to provide the salvation you need to stand one day in the very presence of God, holy and whole. Jesus can do that, even if others think you're an impossible case, even if you think you're an impossible case. If you come to Jesus in humble faith, he is able and he is willing to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of everything that brings you shame so that you can live forever with God. That's good news for you if you're an unbeliever, and if you're a believer as well. But we need to pray God really helps us appreciate it and believe it. Because our culture wants us to either to believe there's no such thing as being unworthy or that we're too unworthy. The gospel we've embraced, though, is different, very different. We are much worse than we think we are. You are much worse than you think you are. And there are a million reasons you shouldn't be able to enter the presence of God. But Jesus is better than you could possibly imagine because he came to deal with every single last one of them. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so ordinary, not just sinful, ordinary, and then broken. How can you love people like us? If we see ourselves for what we really are, who we really are, it is shocking. And yet we believe it because we didn't come up with this idea. You did. And Jesus, this is why you came into this world, because you loved sinners. And you came to offer your life in their place to do what none of us can do, and that is to provide a complete and total salvation. And for that, we praise you. Amen.